Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Those of you joining us in person, glad you're here too. We're on part four in the conclusion of a series we're calling Unmendable. Uh, it's a series on uh, relationships, and uh, we made up a word. Um, unmendable isn't actually a word, doesn't work in Scrabble, but it means uh, those relationships that uh, are so fractured, they feel kind of like they're irreparable. Irreparable is probably a more proper word. It just didn't, it doesn't look as good on a screen. So we went with unmendable instead. Um, and it's been three weeks of conversation leading up to this, talking about, you know, preparing for difficult relationships and conversations, and you had a chance this week probably to practice and put some of these elements into practice. Uh, And today we're going to close off our series, and anytime we close off our series, it means communion at the end, Um, so we're going to participate in that. And uh, I've done parts one through three. Uh, You can go back, you can go to the website, eastlikecitiescom slash talks, or if you have the app, there's a little talks button on the bottom. You can catch up on the series in that way. Um, And today uh, we're going to have a friend of mine come and finish this up, and it's uh, sometimes... When we do guest speakers, they're via video because we don't have a big pastoral staff. You're looking at it. Um, and uh, and so, but today it's an in-person one. And it's a, a guy who uh, is not a pastor, right, uh, yet. I'm working on that, um, speaking that into, in, into that. But um, he does work for me at here at the church. And by me, if you call East Lake Home and you give here, he kind of works for you too. Uh, he we handle he handles uh, does part time role handling operations at the theater. It's a seventy year old building, uh, and each week, you know, we have things coming in and out, and so we're constantly imagine your home that's like five years old or whatever, and how much uh, repairs, and then times that by exponentially a lot. Throw a bunch of kids in the mix and events uh, of people that you know don't have any uh, don't call this home; they just use it, uh, and you can imagine what it feels like to every Monday be like, all right, what are we duct taping today? Um, so that's how that works here, uh, handles that. And then he's handling some wear love stuff for us as well, some part-time stuff doing our wear love, which uh, it, it, she mentioned in the video is, is kind of our outreach thing. This is what we do to kind of serve the community. Uh, we we think that um, if we're going to be followers of the way of Christ, it also means doing something beyond ourselves other than just living for ourselves. And that that looks different depending on which season of life you're in, right? If you're a, a single mom or, or a, a, a retired or this, you, just, you taking inventory of my own personal life, figuring out where I'm available and how I can make myself uh, do something for not just me. I spend a majority of my time accumulating things for me, getting things right in my life and creating order and structure for me. What can I do for somebody else? So uh, where love is coming alongside to be able to be like, we want to partner with nonprofit organizations and communities and, and figure out what they're doing. How can we plug ourselves into what they're already doing? And he handles a lot of those conversations, both with nonprofits, but then within the, within the church as well. So maybe perhaps you've uh, met him through that uh, or with some of our uh, soul soup or some of our, any, any other things. Um, he handles a Saturday group uh, that goes down and cleans the kitchen at that Union Gospel Mission. Um, so anyways, lots of good stuff. A good friend of mine, it's been uh, about eight years of a relationship on and off again, moving, doing these things, ups and downs, highs and lows, uh, all of that stuff. And uh, and what's been interesting about Travis, and, and he knows this too, he's one of the most inquisitive uh, people that I know, asking all kinds of questions 
and uh, not allowing conversations to remain at the surface level. Uh, when we, uh, midweek, uh, he'll be asking me constantly about this series. What are you talking about this week? What are you talking about this weekend? And I'll be like, bro, it's Monday. I like, it's the first, give me a couple of days to figure this out. I don't even know what I'm talking about yet. I don't even know what I, I can't remember what I talked about yesterday. Uh, but he's, uh, the conversation that we have are never boring. They're always, always very interesting. And as a part of this series, he kept saying, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I thought you should get up and close the series. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to do today. So if you would, please welcome my friend, Travis Rybarski. Morning. Good morning. Uh, the real reason I'm doing this uh, talk, closing the series off, is that uh, I, I was asking Brent, why did you make up a word for the title of this series? And he said, well, there's just no word for that. I had to make one up because there's no, and I said, irreparable? He goes, okay, yeah, you're, you're closing off the series. So, uh, and also, he mentioned that I work for you guys and I do building maintenance here, but I only have 10 hours a week to do building maintenance, and it's a 70-year-old theater. So uh, if you notice something that needs to be done, please keep it to yourself, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it'll, it'll be written down on a whiteboard somewhere if you bring it up. Uh, the way that I met Brent eight years ago was a, some kind of ridiculous scene out of a Karate Kid movie or something, because this place was not open yet, but I had heard rumors that it was going to be a church that would rent itself out as a venue, and I was throwing rap battle events at a charming dive bar called Ray's Golden Lion on the other side of the Uptown Plaza. I was very grateful that they would rent to me, but I was looking for an upgrade, and my friends and I were walking around passing out flyers for our rap battle show, and we noticed that the door here was unlocked. So we just walked in and started wandering around. We heard noises, and we find the pastor um, alone in a dark hallway back here in the early childhood room doing something involving concrete and grinding and a lot of dust. And, and we asked him, we heard this is going to be a venue. Would you let us uh, throw a show here uh, when you get it opened up? And he said, Travis, I think this place will be much more than a venue to you. I have many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. And, and so obviously I turned to like my at-risk youth friends, Blake and Blazer, who were passing out flyers with me in matching hoodies. And I was like, what does this guy think he's got to teach us? And, uh, and, it, and he, said, he said, discipline. And so he put us directly to work right then and there. And on, honestly, that part of the story is true. He genuinely did uh, put me to work right then and there and let me work off the venue fee and then come back later. I got a discount too, though, because I, I did it for charity. I did it for charity because I didn't think he would let me throw a rap battle event in his church if it wasn't for charity. Turns out it's just a weird church. And so I did it for charity for no reason, which, which sucks. And uh, no, so anyway... Uh, a couple years after that, me and Brent remained friends. I wasn't interested in the Christian thing, but I never felt he was pushing anything on me. I was comfortable hanging out with him. And I, a couple years later, I go through a, a quarter-life crisis that sends me just desperately seeking truth that can restore me to sanity. And one of the things I realized was that I had always idolized either myself or some other human that I know as if somebody can live up to the highest standards. And I was perpetually frustrated and disappointed that people could be my model for one specific thing, like you can teach me to be financially responsible, uh, Brent can teach me Taekwondo, and, uh, and you know, my mom can teach me grace, and my dad can teach me how to eat healthy and, and be responsible. And so there's people who can be models for specific things, but I had never found someone who could be a model of how to be human, and that really ticked me off. And like Brent mentioned that we've had ups and downs, and part of that is, it's like, Brent, why don't you live up to what a perfect human being is supposed to be so I can have something to look up to? 
And uh, so I, I realized that I was gonna need to plug something spiritual into that place in my life. And my father who's in the room had raised me in a Christian church and he had always told me that Jesus is the person to put in that position. So I knew that couldn't be it and I needed to find something else. <laughs> so I'm reading yogis and Buddhists and Sufis and everything. And I learned a lot of interesting things. I'm not bashing other traditions at all. In fact, I, I found a lot in common uh, with them between Christianity, like uh, particularly their reverence for Jesus. There's all these people from other traditions that I read. I'm looking for anything but Jesus and Paramahansa Yogananda and Thich Han and Neil Douglas Klotz and all these spiritual guys from other traditions are saying, yeah, what, what we're teaching, what a human being is supposed to be, Jesus embodied that. So they have all these different uh, ways of thinking about Jesus was, but he seemed to be the most universally agreed upon figure for what a human being is supposed to be, no matter what culture you're coming from. And I'm like, all right, that's actually pretty dope. I'm gonna give that a shot. So I started reading the words of Jesus and praying and meditating in an effort to contact Jesus in some spiritual or mystical way and reading about the way that he did life and contemplating what it meant. And so I felt comfortable coming to Eastlake after that because I had never felt like Brant or anyone I met at Eastlake was trying to package Christianity and sell it to me. I felt like they were trying to offer me Christian ideas that were good for me. It's the difference between like we have a, if Christianity is a tree, it's got all these fruits growing off of it, like ideas that are life-giving and spiritual practices that are enriching. And, and we don't want to just try to convince people and manipulate people into saying, this is the best tree. We want you to buy this tree. All we have to do is pick the fruits off of the tree and give them away and they speak for themselves. And so I like that that seems to generally be the approach here. I feel comfortable here for that reason. And Brent mentioned that I'm uh, inquisitive and, and not boring. And so I have to start this talk off with something weird, which is a, a, a really interesting modern allegory, uh, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. No, I'm just kidding. It's, uh, I, I wanna talk about, uh, uh, about the cosmos according to the book of John. There's this, uh, this GK Chesterton quote that says, your religion is not the church that you go to, but the cosmos that you live in. What's your worldview pertaining to the source of life, how life works and what your relationship is to it? That's your cosmology, the cosmos that you live in. So what is a worldview that is true according to John? John wrote the, either John or very close followers of John wrote the fourth book in the New Testament, which is uh, the most poetically and spiritually and esoterically oriented uh, of the four testaments about Jesus, of the four, uh, they call it the canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So John's my personal favorite. And he is, he he's writes some weird poetry in this thing that I think is so fun. So he, he starts off his, his book like this. He kicks it off like Genesis by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So you can see this is verse 1, 10, and 14. It's pieced together, not to be misleading, but just to emphasize a part of this poem. So when he says word, when John writes word, he's saying that Jesus is the word of God in the flesh and that that's ever present, but we don't notice it. The word word here is our translation of logos. Logos is a really interesting concept from Greek philosophy that was adopted and modified by Christian philosophy. And so I wanna talk about logos and then come back to the scripture with that point clarified. So three points on the logos that come from Greek philosophy. So 500 years before Jesus came around, these ideas already existed. There's some mysterious order to life. Life is, is rational and predictable and intelligible. There's some mysterious structure that holds this whole thing together. 
And that structure, to make point two, it's not just a, uh, an abstract stuff, it's singular. There has to be one source of structure or this whole thing wouldn't work as miraculously as it works. So they nicknamed the structure of reality, the logos, and logos is also associated with word because in, in the way that the Greek philosophers thought was, since there's some structure to reality, there's some structure in my mind, so there's rationality, I can have rational thoughts, I can speak rational thoughts, so they thought of a true statement as a direct expression of the divine. You're channeling objective reality when you speak something that's true, so the logos is the word. And, and three, they, they had the idea that humans were out of order, so there is some structure to life, and we seem to violate the structure of life, uh, uh, assault the structure of life, do things that aren't aligned with natural law. And like Heraclitus, he was a Greek philosopher who lived around 500 years before Jesus, he made the statement, if you listen to the Logos, not to me, you will realize that the Logos is one. So to the second point. And then he said, although the Logos is common, most people live as though they have their own private understanding. So we live as though our little worldview, even regardless of how detached it is from objective reality, is objective reality. We each have our own conception of truth. So even though the Logos is common, eternal, ever-present, we live as though we have our private understanding. And the, uh, so all those ideas existed. And so Christian philosophy, their message was not, hey, Greek philosophy is stupid. You guys should do Christian philosophy instead. It's way better. Uh, their message was, we agree with you on the, the deepest of your ideas. And we propose that something miraculous has happened that clarifies those ideas further. So the fourth and fifth point, which are kind of the Christian addendum to the Logos, is the, the Logos was God's perfect reflection of himself. So when John is saying, uh, you can leave it on this slide for now, Raleigh, but I'll skip ahead. And uh, when John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, he's saying there's some miraculous source of life. And the first thing it ever created was a perfect reflection of itself. And then everything in reality was created through that. So the logos was God's perfect reflection before time began. And the fifth point is that the logos took human form in order to restore order because we had the option to scramble things up and we took it, boy, did we take it. So the, uh, the, to go back to the John verse, uh, if I point up here, it's a weird habit. There's a TV on the back of the wall that I'm referencing. So don't like think I'm pointing at something you need to look at. In, uh, in the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. So the miraculous source that turned nothing into something somehow or was some eternal something first reflected itself. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. So saying that that original reflection of God was also the, the absolute blueprint through which everything else was made. And the Logos was made flesh and dwelt among us. That original blueprint witnessed us being uh, disordered within it and decided to enter into creation to straighten things out for us. Even though that meant we were going to cause great suffering to him, he was still willing to do that. And so, uh, like in modern terms, there was a perfect and whole picture of reality at the beginning of time. And then it was broken up into pieces. So you have a right to be a little piece of reality and you're a little piece of reality and I'm a little piece of reality. And we have the free will to get out of touch with order, with the divine unity of things and scramble up uh, the puzzle. So the, the picture still exists. The box still exists that we came out of that has the whole perfect picture on it. 
but we are a bunch of scrambled puzzle pieces on a table. And so the box showed up and said, hey, remember me? You have gotten so scrambled up, you don't remember real truth, real love, real unity anymore, but I've always existed. You've always had the option to connect with me, but you've gotten so confused that I need to come remind you of that in person. So the Christian invitation is something like cultivating the perfect original picture of creation in human culture so that humanity is like Jesus. And uh, this is alluded to in the 17th chapter of the book of John. So this is near the end of this same weird esoteric book that I really like. Um, and Jesus in this line is praying out loud for humans. And so it's like he is speaking with God but out loud so that we can overhear. And he's saying, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. So he's saying, you, God, define my nature, and they were all created through me, but they're out of order now, so can we bring them back into order? Uh, it's like in, in How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. He says, if you wanna give someone motivation and inspiration, oh yeah, I have the actual quote, give them a fine reputation to live up to, and they will make prodigious efforts rather than see you disillusioned. In other words, if you tell somebody that they are something awesome, they will try to live up to that reputation, which is why teachers uh, will say, they don't say, can anybody help me with a difficult task? They say, is there anybody really buff in the room? And all the second graders stand up to do the job and they wanna prove that the teacher was right. There was somebody buff in the room. And so Jesus is doing this to us. Uh, and, and he's saying, I am the Logos here in person. These creatures around me are made of the Logos, but have broken from it. God, may they act like they're the Logos in the way that I do and the way that I've demonstrated so that unity can be restored. And that is a lofty prayer. Of course, Jesus would offer a lofty prayer. Of course, Jesus would pray for the very best for humanity. But that verse is wild because it sounds like it's talking about something like world peace. And when I think of world peace, the first place that my head goes is all of these massive current global world events that are completely beyond my ability and capacity to do anything about. And that's not the stuff that I'm called to worry about. I'm called to worry about the fact that there was still masking tape on those rails from three years ago when we put the little metal rings around them and I had to cut them off with a razor blade last week and that was six hours of my week. And I restored order to that little piece of the cosmos. Um, I'm not gonna solve uh, uh, some situation in Ukraine or something, but uh, there is somebody who is probably assigned to deal with that. And uh, hopefully that person has done their personal work so that they can be present and act uh, rightly in the world. So that's what I wanna talk about is the fact that you at least have control over the little piece of the cosmos that you are. You at least uh, can sort yourself out. And we are in this shared human condition. We have done as, as humanity in, in our shared history, we have done so much dirt to get ourselves mixed up in the way that we are. Each of us as an individual doesn't live up to our full potential and we have done so much dirt to get ourselves where we are. And that dirt that, uh, ha that holds us back is not located on Twitter, it's not located on the news, uh, it is located in our hearts, that's where we carry it and that's where we can address it and that's where this work is done. So there's a very courageous process for doing that work and it is the 12-step process it's a, a process that's inspired by Christian philosophy and it's an antidote to addiction. It is a process for people who are hopelessly addicted to experience a spiritual awakening that frees them from addiction. And its origins are, go back to the 1930s. There was a hopeless alcoholic named Bill 
who was being ministered to by Christian priests. of a, It's called the Oxford Group. They were an Episcopal ministry. And these Christians are telling this dude, if you want to really conquer alcohol once and for all, you're going to have to surrender to the deepest thing that you can find within you, to the deepest thing in the cosmos. Allow that to make the decisions and provide the guidance in your life. Otherwise, you're going to stay stuck in your private understanding. In other words, you're insane because you're stuck in your own little world and you're gonna have to crack yourself open by surrendering to God and letting people speak into your life. So they get through to Bill. Uh, in his own time, he is, I think it was in a hospital bed by himself when this happened. He had some mystical experience. He's surrounded by a transcendent light. He stopped drinking as a result of it, but he realized that he couldn't maintain his sobriety. He couldn't keep the flame that that mystical experience provided alive if he didn't figure out how to codify the process of going through a spiritual awakening to free yourself from addiction and help other people to do it and continually do work to clear his conscience. And so he traveled around meeting with other priests and meeting with hopeless alcoholics who needed help and medical doctors and medical doctors who were hopeless alcoholics who needed help and saying, how did I do this? How did this work? What's the philosophy here? I mentioned at the beginning of the talk that I really like the form of Christianity that's about sharing truths that are good for people, not saying first, hey, affirm what I believe about God, affirm my idea of Christianity. You need what I have. You know, my Christian worldview is perfect. And this is the 12 step process is an ingenious work of applied Christian philosophy with no Christianese attached. Uh, there, there's nothing in it that is explicitly Christian. You don't have to be a Christian to do the process but they use Christian philosophy to design the process. And so Bill did this whole organic collaboration. He writes out the steps. He writes a book about the steps. That book forms Alcoholics Anonymous's uh, big book. And now there's a hundreds of spinoffs of 12-step programs that help people use this process to recover from addiction and, uh, or at least to maintain sobriety throughout their life and maintain sanity. So the way that the process works is a very brief summary and it's a deep process, but steps one through three are about surrendering to God and admitting that we aren't sane on our own. We aren't sane with our own private understanding. We're saying it when we're attached to objective reality and God defines objective reality. So being surrendered to the divine restores us to sanity. We believe that sanity is the antidote to addiction and God is the route to sanity. The reason they're written like this, we did this, we did this, is it's Bill and these other alcoholics who had maintained sobriety and sanity saying, here's what we did. So you can take this or leave it. Steps four through nine, they clean their closets. They make amends to everyone that they wronged. So the, these steps unfold from four to nine in these baby steps. Write down all the wrong things that you've done that you can think of. There's a lot that you can't, but write down the ones that you can. And then say them out loud to another person who has done the process themselves and won't judge you and is reasonably saying themselves. And then make a plan to make amends to the people you can and then actually do it. So step nine reach out to the people who you can reasonably and responsibly and safely make amends to, not situations where it's just gonna make it worse to bring it up, but when you can, make those amends. And steps 10 through 11 are about repeating the previous steps for the rest of your life. So steps one through nine, restore sanity, and steps 10 and 11, maintain sanity. Let's surrender ourselves to God, make our amends. Uh, and then when we make our amends, we clear our conscience. We have a greater ability to tune into the voice of God. So let's worship even more deeply. We worship more deeply. We get a, we, God searches our heart more. We find more dirt. Let's clear that. Worship more deeply, clear more. Worship clear. And it's a feedback loop. And they say in step 12, interestingly enough, that they have a spiritual awakening as a result of completing these steps. Having had a spiritual awakening, 
As the result of these steps, we try to carry the message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. I was talking with a friend who has completed the 12 steps. Uh, I have not completed the 12 steps. It's, uh, it's not because I'm flawed. It's just because, no, I'm just kidding. It's because I'm not brave enough to do it. Um, it's, uh, I have plenty of things to make amends for. And so I figured if I'm not brave enough to do it, I should probably just preach about it and tell other people to do it, right? <laughs> and so you guys do it. And uh, no, I'll, I'll get around to it. Uh, and so what does this mean that they had a spiritual awakening? I'm talking to a friend this week who went through these steps and mentored a lot of people through these steps. And he said, Travis, the ninth step is where the magic happens, which is where you actually make the apologies. And he said one of the reasons that that's where the magic happens and why they refer to this as a spiritual awakening is they learn that people have way more grace than they previously thought. They apologize to people, which is a really scary thing to do, and they find that most people let them off. Uh, it's like when you apologize to somebody, it can feel like you're tying your wrists up with ropes and then handing them a knife and just kind of sitting there like this and saying, I did something wrong to you and I need you to absolve me of it or I'm not okay. And they could step on you in that moment uh, or they could free you in that moment. Most people free you. Most people use that knife to cut the ropes that bind your wrists and say, hey, we're good and, or we're cool again. Or we're not cool again, you stay over there, but we're good, I forgive you, I, I release you of that. And that results in a greater trust in people, which results in a greater trust in life because people are made of grace because life is made of this miraculous unifying grace. And being forgiven by people reminds you of that. It teaches you that that's what life is really made of. Most people react that way. And you know, there's also this kind of spiritual buzzword in our times that is mindfulness. People are trying to cultivate greater awareness and attentiveness in their daily experience, which is a really good thing to do. And if you wanna do that work in a really deep way, clear your conscience. Because we, we can just will ourselves to be more mindful and attentive, and that's a great start. But I propose that that's a surface level solution and that the deeper solution is to answer all of the phones that are going off in the back of your head where your conscience is calling you and saying, you wronged that person and you should apologize or your relationship with this person is not reconciled and people die. What if something happens? Are you good with where that's at? Or you left a mess back there that you should probably go clean up. And because we're all made of the logos, it's not, it's not the divine structure out there in the universe. It's the divine structure found in the depths of our hearts, uh, which is why the Bible says things like, when you sin, you sin against your own soul. Uh, Jesus says, my sheep recognize my voice, as in people who listen to their conscience know that when I'm speaking, it is the very conscience of the cosmos here in person. Uh, the Bible says things like, uh, oh, the law is written on your hearts. So your natural law is encoded in you and your conscience is going to bug you until you pick up the phone. We hit the mute button on it, we hit the snooze button on it and it keeps calling. And that interferes with our ability to be present and experience joy which is another reason that the 12-step process results in what these 12-steppers call a spiritual awakening. And another spiritual awakening piece here is they have this prayer, the serenity prayer. It is, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So what that has to do with reconciliation, the series Unmendable, is we spend so much time and energy waiting for apologies that we are owed and stewing in them. And you're not wrong, you are owed apologies and you do have the right to reflect on that and feel hurt by that, but it is outside of our control, the apologies that we're owed. 
And the apologies that we owe are within our control. So some of these 12-steppers who do this process for life, they become these sages who are in this state of acceptance. They've, they are aligned to their higher power authentically. They've cleared their conscience. When they make a mistake, they clear it again as quick as they can. They keep that cue empty and they leave what's outside of their control in a state of surrender to God and they, they do what they can. So the reason that I'm talking about the logos and the 12-step process is that uh, first of all, the fact that we all have unmendable relationships in our life is a result of the state of the world that we all share. We are in a shared state of disunity from the order that God intended life to function on. And so as a result of that, we all have unmendable relationships. So don't take it personally. You're not alone. This is a, an unmendable feeling world. It's not just your little family that's all messed up. It's this family that's all messed up, this human one. And there's a spiritual significance to reconciling. To reconcile a relationship is to piece the cosmos back together. The tiny little fraction of it that's under your control that you can influence, piece that back together because we're trying to, we're trying to reshape creation so that the face of the creator is less obscured on creation by our dirt. Let's, let's clear it up. That's the work. That's the only game in town. Let's put this thing back together. We have a right example to follow. We have historical records of a person who acted and spoke with total truth, total love, total unity. And so, yeah, we might not be able to remember intuitively who we are, but at least we have a human example to follow of what a human is intended to be. And there's things that we can't do. We can't fix the world. We can't guarantee reconciliation with anyone. And so series is about unmendable because we want to encourage reconciliation, but no one in this room can guarantee that any relationship is reconciled. We can only do our part. What we can do is we can orient ourselves toward God of our understanding. We can read the words of Jesus to further calibrate ourselves to what the nature of God is like in human form. We can allow the wisest part of ourselves to make our decisions, which is what it means to be surrendered to God. You don't let whatever impulse comes forward make your decisions. You wait, you pause, you seek counsel with the wisest thing you can find within you and you let that decide. We can clear our consciences by offering the apologies that we owe. <clears throat> and we have the ability to experience a spiritual awakening by living our lives in that way, experiencing a deeper sense of connection with life, a deeper trust in people, and a more authentic self-confidence. If you want to be confident, you can't, you can't fake it. If you want to be confident, choose your higher power, be authentic, uh, and, and really follow it and really follow up on what it tells you. And if we do those things, we probably will mend a lot of relationships. And when I showed Brent this talk plan this morning, he said, you'll at least create fertile ground for reconciliation. And I think that's worth mentioning. If we do this, we will at least create fertile ground for reconciliation to occur. We will inspire people around us to apologize first, <clears throat> which might mean that you get some apologies that are owed to you because you led by example. Uh, we will at least gain grace, wisdom, understanding, and peace. And we will repair the little piece of the cosmos that is under our control. Because even if people don't respond with reconciliation, we have restored something when we give an apology, and it is significant on a, on a universal scale. And the one last thing that I wanna share from the teachings of Jesus is from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is either the most epic speech that Jesus ever gave or his greatest hits as it was recorded by close disciples. Either way, it's a great read. And he said, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. 
So in modern terms, we say at the end of the service here, sometimes we say you walked in, you grabbed a little uh, piece of paper that folds up, and then you probably set it down when you sat down, and then you left it there, and then uh, I pick it up when you guys leave uh, and put it in the blue bin for you. But if you do actually look into that thing, uh, there's a giving envelope in it, and we say if you like what Eastlake's doing and you want to contribute, you can put money or a check in there. But you know, and aligning with this teaching from Jesus if you want to donate money to a church and then walk away patting yourself on the back like you're in right standing with God because you gave your money to a church, hold on to your money. Think of somebody that you owe an apology to and go and give them that apology and then donate your money so that your priorities are in the right order. Because Jesus is saying here that money is not the central sacrifice that God is asking us for. Our pride is the central sacrifice that God is asking us for. And we can't write down pride on a piece of paper and then like throw it into a campfire or something. Uh, it'll stay in there, it's pretty stuck. And God wants it because it's poisoning us. He wants to take it out of us. And the mechanism by which we sacrifice our pride to God is the apology. When you apologize to a person you owe an apology to, you have sacrificed a little bit of your pride to God. So let's do that and let's make that our primary sacrifice and leave things like money secondary to that. We're gonna take communion in a minute. So the Eastlake band is gonna come up so they can play one more song while we take communion. And I wanna offer my contemplation on communion that connects these teachings from today with the act of communion. Religious rituals are about giving yourself a physical, consistent reminder of some sacred principle. So it's a way of internalizing something that's true or participating in a truth in a way that helps you really feel it and experience it. So my contemplation on communion is mine. If you have your own idea about communion, do it, do your own thing, that's fine. We can do this together. Uh, also, if you're just hungry, you can come grab a cracker. Uh, it's no biggie, it's just a cracker. We bought it at Costco. Uh, but it's not just a cracker if we allow it to be a meaningful ritual. And so this is how I will do that and you're welcome to borrow it if you like. If we hold these ideas to be true, that the universe is made of one structure created by one source, may we study the life of Jesus who embodied that cosmic unity. And because Jesus lifted up a piece of bread proclaiming, this is my body, eat it in remembrance of me, may we take communion as though we are swallowing and internalizing the logos, the unifying grace of God, allowing it to transform us. May we then consider it our natural duty to help unify the world as the unity of life is the very reason we have bread to eat. May we clean up our own dirt, not hold other people's dirt against them. May we offer all the apologies we owe, not wait around for any of the apologies we are owed. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.